Happy Easter. Um, what a great Sunday. Uh, I hope you're well. Uh, patterns are well. Thanks for asking. We're doing great. Fantastic. We're not just surviving, we're thriving. Um, I want to tell you about uh, my week. Uh, I've never flip-flopped more on, uh, on a decision as I have this past week. Let me explain. Um, last Sunday, uh, one of my professors from seminary uh, posted you know, a comment. He said, you know, so many of you pastors are worried or discouraged about not being able to celebrate Easter together next Sunday. And he said, you know, Easter is just a date. Um, why not celebrate Easter on, you know, the day when, you know, the quarantine and the shelter in place lifts? Why don't you make that Easter Sunday? And I thought, now there's an idea. Because I was already miffed uh, because last week was our one year anniversary and we had to do that virtually. And then on top of that, having to do Easter virtually, I mean, that's, that's the one-two punch right there. And, you know, us more than anybody, you know, was just kind of sad about that, lamenting uh, over that. And so at the thought of, you know, postponing Easter, you know, I thought, you know, that that's very doable. We can do that. And I even talked to some of you about it. Um, but then on Monday, you know, I got up and started watching the news and all the experts were saying, you know, this week, not the week before, not the coming week, but this week, this past week is supposed to be the worst uh, this is supposed to be the worst week of the year uh, as it relates to the coronavirus. Uh, more, uh, more people testing positive, and we're, we're going to see a peak uh, in deaths. Uh, and they were predicting this to be the worst week. So I heard that on Monday, already thinking that we're going to postpone Easter and our celebration together. And then I thought, can't do it. I mean, this this week, and providentially, you know, and how it aligns with what, you know, people were projecting to be the worst week in America. This week is Holy Week. And according to our theology, this week um, and what it teaches, you know, in the life and the work of Jesus can strengthen the spine like nothing else. And so because of that, you know, I was, was going to postpone Easter and then I'm like, nope, we're doing it. We're doing Easter this Sunday. And no apologies. And it might be more than just one Sunday. I don't know yet, uh, but stay tuned. Happy Easter. It's Easter Sunday. He has risen, and we're going to talk about it. So, got your Bibles. Let's open to Revelation chapter 21, uh, verse 5. And we've been in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Now we're going to the very, very last book, Revelation uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 5. Uh, but before we read it, uh, two stories. The first is a story about Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther was asked by someone, uh, if you knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, that Jesus was going to come back, it was judgment day, uh, what would you do today? And his response was very simple. He said, I'd plant a tree. And he wasn't being, you know, cute, nor was he being dismissive or disrespectful about a very important event, you know, in, in, uh, in, in, in the church and in, in theology. Um, but, but if you listen to it, what he was saying with his comment was, was something optimistic, something hopeful. Uh, if, if I plant a tree today, Jesus comes back tomorrow, I'm going to be around to enjoy it. Uh, there was a sense of, of hopefulness uh, within Martin Luther. That's one story. Here's the other. I've got to go back uh, about 1,200 years to about 250 A.D. And Cyprian was the, uh, the bishop of Carthage. Uh, in Rome, and what he was experiencing, his ministry is a lot like what we're experiencing, a plague, uh, except his plague was killing 5,000 Romans a day. And so it was in the context 
of, of that severe death and destruction and brokenness and in horror that he wrote these, these very simple words. He said, in the face of death and all of this sickness, we're learning how not to fear death. Um, and he had this fearlessness about him. We're learning how not to fear death. In the midst of death, looking death in the face, 5,000 at a time per day, we're learning how not to fear death. And what I want to suggest this morning is that even though these men are separated by 1,200 years and, and hundreds of, of miles geographically, um, both of them had their hope in one thing. And it's the passage we're looking at this morning. And whoever that means for us, if, if in their context they can find fearlessness and hopefulness from this passage, then so can we. Revelation 21.5 these words are God-breathed. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I want to uh, ask of this text two questions. Uh, and here they are. The first question is, Who is the seated one? And then second, what is he doing? First, who is the seated one? And then second, what is he doing? So first, uh, the seated one. Look back at the beginning of verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said. So who is this person? Thankfully, uh, in church history, there's, there's not a lot of controversy here as to who this person is. The seated one is Jesus. Uh, when John was given this revelation, this is somewhere around... Uh, 95, 100 AD, which means John is, is seeing this vision of Jesus um, seated on the throne about 65, 70 years after Jesus's public ministry. That's how much time has kind of elapsed between, you know, Jesus's death, resurrection, ascension, and John's vision. But same Jesus, um, son of Mary, the same Jesus who was a rabbi to the 12 disciples, the same Jesus who was persecuted by the Jews and the Romans is now the seated one. And notice what, what, what he says here is that this, this seated one is seated upon the throne. Um, you know, John here doesn't say a throne uh, because there's a lot of thrones uh, out there, especially, you know, earthly thrones. But he says the throne is the definite article. Um, there have been, you know, a number of thrones, little t, lowercase t thrones, uh, throughout world history, whether it be Caesar's Czars, monarchs, dictators, uh, presidents, you name it. There's been a lot of little thrones, little authorities. But John says here that Jesus is, is not you know, seated on a throne like that. He's seated on the throne. The throne that has all authority, all power, and all dominion. When King David wrote Psalm 11, uh, he said this in verse 4. He said, the Lord's throne is in heaven. And what believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament um, understood about God's rule and reign is that there was this, this relationship between heaven and earth. But heaven was like uh, the control center, the command center of everything that happened, not just in heaven, but on, on earth. Because that's where God was. And that's where the throne was. So everything that was planned, dreamed, um, implemented, and executed 
started in the throne room with the one who was seated on the throne. This was the place of authority in all of the world, in all of the cosmos, right, as they understood it. That was the place of authority. And who does, who does John see seated on that throne? It's the glorified Jesus. You might be asking, well, how did Jesus get there? How did he get from death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne? Um, don't miss this. This is very important, uh, crucial to our understanding of the gospel. Um, it's this. Old Testament, New Testament, one of the major themes in both Testaments um, is, is the difference in the play between um, the proud and the humble, those who exalt themselves and those who humble themselves. Almost every writer, almost every genre covers this topic, this major theme. And, and here's what the psalmist says about it uh, in particular. We've heard this a number of times within New City. It's, it's if you exalt yourself, in other words, if you live for self-promotion, the Lord is going to humble you. Um, the path to glory and joy is not through self-exaltation. If you do it that way, actually what's going to happen is you're, is you're going to be humbled by God. But the opposite is true. If, if you're humble and if you're meek and if you're selfless, not selfish, but selfless, God will exalt you. God will lift you up. So in other words, the way up is down. Um, and, and nobody in the history of history or anybody knew this better than Jesus. Jesus knew that the way to the throne was through the trough. Uh, and let me illustrate that. Uh, you know, Christmas season was several months ago. It feels like forever ago. Uh, but remember, what's, what's, what's the good news? Uh, what, what is so remarkable about Christmas? Um, you know, Paul would say in Philippians um, that what Jesus did in the incarnation, his leaving of the throne room and coming to earth, was, was he emptying himself of his glory. Uh, he, he kind of gave himself a demotion, so to speak. He emptied himself of the beauty, of the glory, and the fellowship that he had in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He forsook it. And he took on flesh to become one of us. He entered Mary's womb for nine months. He was an infant. He was a newborn. He had to learn how to speak English. He emptied himself of his glory so that he could walk and that he could be among us. Now, that's something only humble people do. Uh, not many people will willingly do that uh, for other people. Not many CEOs would retire uh, from their executive level job, only to enter the same company again as the janitor to clean up a mess. But that's what God did in the incarnation. He came to us because this world is a mess and we need a rescue. And he was coming to do that. So already, just in his coming to us, we see his humility, his lowliness, and his meekness. Um, but he lived for 33 years, as we know. And um, Jesus also did something in his life that's pretty remarkable. And, and, and it, has to, it has to do with this relationship to the law and obedience. Uh, when the Father asked him to do something, uh, Jesus would say, Not my will, but yours be done. That's a very humble thing to say. Um, because Jesus is the preexistent, you know, one who was present at creation. And now he's humbled himself to human form. Uh, and submitting himself um, to the Father's law to live by it, to be baptized, to be circumcised, 
to honor his father and his mother and to submit himself to the Holy Spirit, um, to go where the Holy Spirit led, to do what the Holy Spirit asked him to do. That's a very humble and meek thing to do. So even in his, in his life, uh, in his life of obedience, uh, he did so humbly and lowly. But then we get to his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And when you think about Christ's death, I want you to think about it this way. You know, of all of the deaths in the scriptures, there, there probably isn't one as glorious, as magnificent, as awesome as Elijah's death. You remember how Elijah died, how he, he left this earth to go into God's presence? Uh, it, was, it was in the form of flaming chariots in a whirlwind that swept them up and just took them to heaven. That is dying in style. Um, that is dying in glory, in magnificence. Um, but that's not the way Jesus died. If you've been reading um, in your Gospels this week about uh, the Passion Week and everything Jesus endured up until his point of death, um, the kind of death he he experienced wasn't like Elijah's. It wasn't it wasn't glorious. It was it was abjectly humiliating and devastating. Falsely accused by his peers, by his own people, and, and accused of some of the worst things, blasphemy, taking his father's name in vain, um, and then having to suffer at the hand of the coward Pilate. Um, watching Barabbas, you know, a criminal be released and to hear people say, put his blood on our hands, kill Jesus, crucify him. Uh, he was whipped. Uh, he was stripped of his clothes. He was mocked. They put a robe and they danced around him. Look at the king of the Jews. And they spit upon him. And he was ridiculed, not just by Romans and not just by higher ups in Judaism, but by you know, people who were walking by when he was crucified and hung on the cross. You know, call, call upon God. Call, if, if you really are the son of God, you know, see if he'll, your, your dad will come take care of you. Some of the worst things you could say um, at a very, very difficult time uh, in his life. Humiliating death. And on top of that, you know, crucified naked um, his, his disciples fled. Um, you know, one of his closest companions, Peter, denied him three times. And one of the you know, disciples uh, betrayed him entirely, stabbed him in the back. Uh, he was alone, naked, bleeding, and excruciating pain. Pain that, that most of us will never have to experience or, or even understand. That is a very low that is a very humble thing to do. And, and let me illustrate this way. Um, I'm not a, you know, hey, you know, the sky is falling. Um, you know, we're, America's on a slippery slope of, you know, whatever, you know, theological problem we're experiencing at the time. But I have noticed over the last year that there has been, you know, a, a theological attack on our understanding of Jesus's crucifixion. And when you start dealing with the crucifixion and you start um, changing the recipe, um, that's, that's, that's a very important one. That's salvific. In other words, you change that, you change the gospel entirely. Here, here's what some people are saying. You know, when you look at the cross, 
All we're really supposed to see there is just a grand demonstration of love. That's all it is. In other words, it has nothing to do with, you know, God substituting uh, himself for us. It has nothing to do with God uh, atoning through Jesus, um, you know, new life unto us because he's experiencing the death we deserve. You know, that's that's not what's happening here. It's just a demonstration of love. And, and friends, don't listen to that. Um, go back and read Isaiah 53. This was prophesied in the Old Testament uh, that, yes, on one hand, you know, the crucifixion is, is, is you know, is a, a grand demonstration of God's love. But it's also substitutionary, and it's meant to point to the atonement. That is why Christ is our lamb. He is suffering the punishment, the humiliation that we deserve. And he was silent before his accusers because we are silent before God. We have nothing to say. We have no defense. And if you rob Calvary of the substitutionary atonement, you rob it of its power. And basically what you're saying is, is, is we're not the enemies in, in this grand narrative. You know, we're, we're supposed to be the heroes. We're not the enemies. And, and the gospel tells us different. We're the enemies. We're, we're, we're the problem, not God. We're the problem. And we need rescue. We need salvation. We need to be saved. But we're trying so hard not to admit that. So please, it, it's more than just a grand demonstration of love. Uh, it's for atonement. He is, he's taking the stripes and the punishment that we deserve, the death sentence that we have earned in our place so we might have the life that he earned, right? Think about it this way. Let me illustrate it because this is pretty cool. Um, so in John's account of the, uh, of the resurrection, um, here's the details he gives. Uh, Mary Magdalene uh, finds the tomb empty. She goes back to Peter and tells Peter, Jesus is not there. So Peter hightails it. He runs to the tomb. And, and John gives a lot of detail here. He says that, um, that, that Peter goes into the tomb, and at the head of the place or the bed where, you know, Jesus was laid, it's not there anymore. It's an empty space. But at the head, there was an angel. And at the foot of the bed, there was another angel. And Jesus wasn't there in between. But go back to your Old Testament. Uh, remember the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, at the head of the Ark was what? An angel. At the foot of the Ark was what? Was another angel. What was in between? The mercy seat. And what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Uh, so, so friends, don't, don't, don't water down the crucifixion to just you know a, a big hug, a big kiss from God, what he's offering us in, at Calvary in his, his death is mercy. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus took that upon himself. That is fundamental. Don't lose it because in it is life. That's his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension is the coronation um, to, this, to the throne with all authority and power and dominion. So if Jesus, um, the crucified, the resurrected, and ascended Jesus is the one on the throne, well, now what is he doing? What is he up to? What is he busying himself with? Look at the other part of verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Now, what does that mean when he says, I am making all things new? Think about it this way. What Jesus did locally in his three years of public ministry in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, now that he has ascended and seated on the throne, he is doing what he did locally now cosmically throughout the entire universe. So when we're looking at the miracles, we're looking at the teachings, you know, of Jesus and his public ministry. Now what Jesus is doing with all authority, all power, and with all of his leadership is, is doing what he did locally now, universally and cosmically. Um, what is he doing? Uh, notice what he's, notice what the text does not say. Uh, and other theologians have made this point and it's very helpful. It does not say that Jesus is making all new things. Uh, because of the brokenness and the sadness of this world, Jesus doesn't say, scrap it all, we're starting over. Um, think about uh, think about it this way. When you wake up in the morning, you get your first cup of coffee because everybody has more than one cup of coffee, or you should. Uh, and you walk back into your room and you look at your, your bed and there before you is that wrinkled, uh, slept in, unmade bed. Uh, it would be foolish to say um, that is that can't be fixed. Um, that looks so bad. Throw out the bed, throw out the mattress, throw out the sheets. Nobody says that. But what do we do? Uh, we go in there and we remake it. We turn what is disorder and chaos into order. Uh, and we rule over it. And we make things right. Uh, so with the brokenness of this world, don't miss this because I think a lot of us kind of assume this maybe subtly, but Jesus, when he comes back and make all things right, he, he's not making all new things. That's not what the text says. It says he's making all things new. All things new. Everything you see, everything you experience, uh, in some ways, it's going to be changed and transformed, but this, this earth and this world is not going anywhere. We're not starting with a new universe, you know, like something out of a Marvel, um, you know, series or universe uh, or, or movies. Um, it's going to be the same earth. Um, just renewed, all things uh, made new. What that implies is that something has gone wrong. Um, it's the reason why, you know, you can see one of the most beautiful sunsets you've ever seen in your life, but you're looking at it in the hospital room of a family member who's on a ventilator. So you're looking at one of the most beautiful things on this one hand and then on the other, a great tragedy. There's something wrong with this world. And providentially, a couple weeks ago, we spent two Sundays in Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 kind of answers that question for us is what is wrong with this world? It's cursed. Uh, we're the problem with this world. Um, we're cursed. Um, and so it's why we see beauty, but why we see great brokenness. And boy, we're getting a front, front row seat right now to the brokenness of this world. A couple illustrations of that. One, you know, one economist said, you know, hey, expect, again, this is a projection, expect, you know, a third of the restaurants uh, to, to shut down entirely because they're not going to be able to make it through this, this pandemic. They're, they're not going to be able to, you know, restart the business. Um, they just can't afford it. Um, and that's sad because 
we need food and especially good food. Um, and so they're projecting a third of the restaurants just, just fold and go away. Um, because of, of this pandemic, we haven't been able to have some very, very happy celebrations. Uh, we have some friends uh, whose daughter was getting married and they had to cancel the wedding plans and all the reservations and all the deposits they paid uh, for this wedding. Um, we can't have weddings, uh, at least gathered weddings. People can get married and, and some have. And that's, and that's sad. But at the same time, um, there, there's good things we can't do. But then there's also um, some mourning and lamenting and sad things that we need to do that we can't do either. I've got another really close friend who, who is a minister in Memphis and one of his pastors, co-pastors, died of coronavirus two weeks ago. And they can't bury him. They can't have a funeral. They can't have that closure uh, that you want uh, when someone very, very close and dear to you passes away. Why is that happening in this world? <laughs> this world is cursed. Um, you know, not to, not to tug on your heartstrings, but the ones that get me are the stories of elderly or those who are sick uh, who, have to, who end up dying by themselves because family members are not allowed into the hospital, you know, to sit at the bedside of, of their loved ones who are passing away. And you just go, where are we? And what is wrong with this world? And, and Genesis 3 answers that for us. It's cursed. This world is cursed. So if Jesus is going to make all things new, he's got to do something with that curse, right? That's the bad news. Here, here's the good news. Uh, two stories here. Maybe you've seen, maybe you've seen this on your, you know, your social media outlet or on the news. It's, you know, a child, you know, a very, very young child who was born deaf. And because of a surgical implant that they were able to, you know, to put in this child's ear and on the side of the head, this child's going to be able to hear for the first time. So the nurse is over here clacking on the, you know, on the keyboard and she says, okay, now, now start talking to your child. And she's speaking to the parents and the parents, you know, begin, you know, speaking to the child and the child hears the parents for the first time and the child's eyes get really wide and the child, you know, starts to smile because, you know, they're hearing the parents' voice for the first time. The parents are just a blabbering mess. Uh, and they're emotional. Um, somebody had to invent that hearing aid. Or maybe you've seen this one. Um, you know, a number of people are born colorblind, but now they've come up with these glasses that if you wear them, you know, put them on and you look through them, you can now see a full spectrum of color. And so people are being gifted these glasses by family members and they're filming the first time they put them on. And so the first time they're getting to see the green of the grass, you know, the, the purple or the pink or the yellow of the petals or the blue of the sky, and they're emotional. And the family members who gave the gift are emotional. You know, you're getting to see the beauty and the goodness um, that, that this world was created in, in new ways. And again, somebody invented these glasses. Somebody did it. The question is, is how is Jesus going to be making all things new? Uh, if he's up there, and if the curse is down here, it's almost as if Jesus says, you know, why don't I surround myself with a people, a tribe, 
uh, of people I'll bring to myself. And our primary job uh, is, is to make all things new. Is to not only acknowledge the brokenness of this world and our, our fault in it, but to say it can be undone. And some people hear that and go, well, yeah, but not me. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the power. I don't have abilities to do that. But what if God said, yeah, you don't? He agrees. But what if, what if I gave you a power? What if the power that raised me from the dead is the same power I gave to you? And that power is, is not a power or a force. That power is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. What if I gave you the Holy Spirit to do it? To be remakers, recreators, people who are helping push back and undo the brokenness of this world. And, and little pieces, little cities, one acre, one person, one city at a time until he comes back. And he ushers everything in perfectly and fully. Until then, what if, what if God surrounded himself with the people to say, hey, what I started in Jerusalem and Judea... What if, if, if you kind of picked up that mantle and came after me? What if, you know, it, you know, thinking about, you know, what you're going to spend the rest of your life doing and, and teaching your family to do? What if the overarching theme of it all was reversing the curse? Undoing some of the brokenness in the world in small ways, but in little pieces at a time. I don't know how that lands with you, but that's something that both non-believers and believers, those inside the church and outside the church, need to hear. Because I don't know what you've heard about what it means to be a Christian, but that's straight from the throne room. And that's straight from the one who's seated upon it. To be a Christian isn't just to be somebody who um, who lives by an arbitrary set of rules and judges other, other people when they don't do it. That couldn't be further from Christianity. Christianity is is people that come behind Jesus with a power not of their own, who like him say, you know, I'm not here for a throne, but I'm here for a trough, because I know that that's the, that's the pattern of life. That's the pattern of glories. Is first the trough, then the throne. Why, how do we know that? Because Jesus showed it to us. And I'm going to spend my life and my efforts, my monies, my, my energies, coming behind Jesus and helping turn this world into the thing it's, it's fully going to become when he returns and when he comes back. And what if, from the throne room, you know, Jesus with a smirk on his face and says, and what if, what if we do it together? I don't know what, what you've heard about Christianity, but that's, Christianity. That's the invitation of Jesus. It's not sit back and watch, um, but with resurrection, limitless power of the Holy Spirit say, you want to see this world change? You want to see a difference? You want to see the curse being pushed back? Um, one fracture, um, one broken piece at a time, that's Jesus's business. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you know, I will make all things new. He says, I am making all things new. This is going forward. That's, that's where all this glory and all this goodness we see is coming from. It's coming from the throne room. He says, do you want to come along?
Now that's an invitation. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. And let us go out and serve this world as those who love our Lord and Savior, King Jesus, the one who died, the one who humbled himself, the one who rose from the dead, and the one who sits on the throne. Amen and amen.